the next word, must. If, if you will be saved, it will be only through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, then you have been given the same essential mandate that Paul gave to Timothy. The reason God didn't take you to heaven the day, the moment that you first believed is because now that you belong to him, you have work to do. You have a job to do. You have a, a significant role in this world while you live in it. And while you are alive, this side of heaven, you exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, calling all men everywhere and all women and all children everywhere to repent and believe for their joy. Last week I began the message by quoting Pastor Mark Dever, who recently said the following, if you are not obeying the Great Commission by either evangelizing the lost or discipling a believer, I'm not sure what you mean when you say that you are a follower of Christ. To be a disciple of Christ means that you are actively helping to make disciples. Why aren't we more effective with the gospel than we are? Why aren't we more effective at making disciples than we are? And, and, and I, let me just throw in a caveat here. I think we're more effective and better equipped and doing a better job at making disciples than we ever have. But, oh my goodness, we have a long way to grow. Why aren't we further along than we are? I want to suggest to you that it's primarily because we as a church often fail to live on mission. We as individuals often fail to live on mission. And there's probably more than one reason for that. Last week I suggested one significant reason is fear. Fear. Fear, I'm afraid I'll say something wrong. I'm afraid I'll be rejected. I'm afraid my neighbor won't speak to me again. And, and you know what? Those are probably irrational fears, and sometimes they will prove to be true. So fear is a deterrent to sharing the gospel. There's other reasons for not living on mission, including complacency. We talked about this in our small group this week. This was helpful for me to hear other people's perspective and their struggles. Complacency is one. And another one is lack of love for the lost. I agree with that. Agree with that. I mean, we'd rather just, just be here with our brothers and sisters in Christ and relate to them. You know, wish we could work with them, wish we could spend more time with them, wish we could, you know, go on vacations. Well, well, maybe not vacations, but, uh, but we want to be together. We'd rather not be with people who are hostile to the gospel. It doesn't matter. If you are alive in this world, you will be living among sinners, many of whom will be unbelievers. If you don't love them, then you should repent. We should repent of our lack of love for them. It doesn't mean you have to have warm feelings. It does mean you have to be dev devoted to give what you have that they need because God wants you to. And what is it that you have that they need? The gospel. You have Christ. And so there are other reasons, but Timothy's primary issue here was fear, at least in this context. And I suspect that might be the case for many if not most of us as well. We understand that to live on mission will probably cost us something. We don't know when, we don't know how. We, we don't like suffering. But again, as long as you have breath, you will suffer. As long as you live in this world, you will experience suffering. I mean, there's just no way around it. It, it, 
And I'm not even talking necessarily about suffering for the gospel. You were going to suffer one way or another. So the, 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 the myth of security grips us, I think. We think we can keep ourselves safe, and we just can't. We can't. We're in this world for a little while, and then God calls us home. All who desire to live godly lives, however, Paul says, on top of your regular suffering, all who desire to live godly lives, those of you who are serious about pursuing Jesus Christ and not be nominal Christians, you will be persecuted to some degree. And in our culture, not much, but maybe some. So if you picture your life as a little boat on a turbulent sea, it makes sense to ask, what provision has God made to keep our little bark upright and afloat in the midst of the wind and the rains and the resistance, the pushback that threatens us? And we pick up where we left off last time. I suggest again that in our text for this morning, Paul offers Timothy and us five huge ballast stones. Ballast is that weight in the bottom of your boat that keeps you upright. Five weighty truths, five doctrines that you should have deep in the hull of your soul to keep your heart, to keep your life upright when we're seeking to be faithful to the Lord. Keep us seaworthy as we strive to live on mission in this world. Well, let's begin as we always begin before we unpack the text. Let's read it. So this will be our third scripture reading of the morning. And we are a Bible church, right? And that's what Bible churches used to be known for. I don't care what anybody else is known for, but we're going to be known for the Bible. Let's stand together and we'll read. Beginning with verse 8. I'm sorry, this is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writing to Timothy, he's writing from jail, and he says this to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. So again, there are five main points I want to emphasize. We'll get to the last two next week, probably. The first two we considered last week. The first one was when you were tempted to drift off mission because of fear. Remember this, number one, remember Jesus is risen and reigning. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David. When, David, when Paul says... Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David. He's pointing us to the weighty ballast stone of the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ, which is why I read 
from Colossians chapter 1 a little while ago. What is the doctrine of Christ? Well, we don't have time to talk about the whole doctrine of Christ, but here's what Paul focuses on. We could say much about this, but two things that Paul mentions. First, Jesus is a living Savior, not a dead one. He is risen from the dead. And second, he says, Jesus is the offspring of David, meaning that he wants to remind us that Jesus is king. He is king of kings. Jesus is three offices, prophet, priest, and king. This is that part of Christology or the study of Christ, the doctrine of Christ that points to his role as king, not just prophet, not just priest, but king. He's sovereign over all, as we read in Colossians 1. He created all things. All things were created by him and for him. Why? Because he's the king. He said, let there be, and there was. That's sovereignty. And so David means to remind us that Jesus is king. He is the Christ. He is the anointed of God, the king who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. It's not as though Jesus possessed that authority once upon a time, long, long ago, 2,000 years ago. No, he still wields the same amount of authority. Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he has authority. He told the disciples and those who were around them on that particular day, I will lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back again. And that's exactly what he did. He took his life back again. Nobody can do that. Nobody can do that unless you are God, unless you are king. And by the way, it is no coincidence that upon giving his disciples the great co-mission, co means together, mission is what we're told to do. Co-mission means we do this together. It was no coincidence that when Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he started it by saying these words. And when we quote the Great Commission, we usually skip this part. We would say the Great Commission is go into all the world, etc. No, 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 no. If you don't have the first sentence, then you have, you have, you have no hope of accomplishing your mission. Because here's the first phrase. All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Now that pretty much covers everything. You're either, I mean, you would agree with me, right? If you're not in heaven, you're on earth. You're not on earth, you're in heaven. You say, well, I can be in Mars. That's in heaven. That's part of heaven, the heavens. Um, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And notice the therefore. Go, therefore. Why? Because I have authority over everything. And you're going out representing me. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he finishes by declaring, And I, who have all authority, and am telling you to go, I am with you. The one who has all authority in heaven and earth, who's giving you a mission, know this for certain, 
wherever you go on that mission, you won't see me, but I'm with you. Trust me, I'm with you. That is a great hope. That is a great encouragement. And by the way, uh, the Lord said that all the way through the scriptures. You see in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Remember what he said to Joshua. Joshua, do not be afraid. Why? Because I am with you. I'm with you. You can't see me, but I'm here. I'm here. Beloved, this is enormous hope. The fact that Jesus is alive and wields all authority over heaven and on earth is what gives us hope that our mission in this world will succeed. He's not sending us out on our own. He is with us, and all of his authority is with him. Until the first great ballast in your ship should be a robust Christology, especially in these two areas. Jesus is a living Savior, and he's not just a living Savior. He's the ruling King. And so this is great ballast stone number one. Don't, don't tell me doctrine is not important. Your doctrine matters, and, and you already have doctrine. It may be false, but there are things you believe about God. Just make sure they're lining up with the book, his book. The second weighty ballast stone, as we said last week, that Paul offers us is that the word of God cannot be bound. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, this is a great promise as well. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul's in jail. He's, uh, he's chained to a wall or to the floor, or he's chained to a soldier. We don't know. He was arrested for preaching the gospel and was put in jail. And why? Why was he put in jail? For no other reason other than he was preaching the gospel. He was preaching that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is King. But you know what? He didn't worry about being in jail. He didn't worry about his, you know, what God was going to do, whether he was going to fulfill his promise or not. Because Paul understood that his only responsibility was to get the message right to proclaim the message. No power, once the message is proclaimed, no power can thwart it. You see, beloved, we don't need a big church and a big program to minister the gospel effectively. In fact, more and more, those churches are fading and falling away. And new strategies come up, and they look real big and wonderful, and, and then they, you find out years later that they end up admitting we were wrong. Um, you don't need a slick presentation to be effective with the gospel. You don't have to have access to celebrities to be effective with the gospel. All you have to do is faithfully deliver the message. It is the will of God that the simple proclamation of the gospel will be the means of creating faith in the heart of all who believe. It is the simple proclamation of the gospel that creates faith. And so just, just get to know the gospel. Find the gospel everywhere it exists in the Bible. Learn it. Do you realize that, for example, in Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes 
from the gospel. All of it, all of the armor pieces are gospel pieces, right? Truth, faith, salvation, all of it. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, all of it is about the gospel. Learn the gospel. It's all over the place in the New Testament. And some places in the Old Testament. Because the reason you need to learn it is because that's all you need. That's all you need. Just deliver the message faithfully. And by the way, have a life that resembles the gospel as well so that you're not contradicting it by the way you live. So the first weighty ballast stone is that Jesus is alive and that he reigns. The second is that the word of God cannot be bound. Speak the truth. Plant the seed. Go home, go to sleep. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. One of these days you'll get up and you'll look out over your fields and there'll be, there'll be things budding all over the place. And you're going to say, how did that happen? I don't know how that happened. All I did was plant the seed. God gave the growth. It's not for me to know how he does that. But number three, third ballast stone is, and we'll spend the rest of our time here. Some of you are going to be challenged by this. Some, a few of you are going to be offended by this. Uh, and that's okay. You know why I say it's okay? It's okay for me. Because my job is just to deliver the message. And so I hope that everything I say to you in the next 30 minutes is I can demonstrate out of the Bible. In fact, I have so many scriptures to share with you, we won't have time for them all. It's just, uh, I'm going to have to make a decision where to cut it off. But look at verse 10. Here it is. Therefore. Now, why is that therefore? Therefore. What is it therefore? It's pointing backwards, as it always does. I'm suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the, what's the next word? The elect, or if you have the NAS, it's chosen. Why? Why am I willing to endure everything for them? So that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is election, key words here, election and salvation. Whatever this election is about, it refers to salvation. And so it's got to be important, right? It's got to be important. So Paul's saying, because Jesus Christ is risen and reigning, he's the Messiah, and because the word of God is not bound, I am willing to suffer. And I am willing to do how much? I'm willing to endure all things. Okay, put yourself back in your fear situation. When are you most afraid to share the gospel? And Paul's saying, I'm willing to endure that. I'm willing to endure it. Paul, you might be stoned in the next city. All right, let me think about it. I'm willing to endure that. I'm willing to endure it again. Paul, you might be shipwrecked. Well, I've been, that, been there, done that twice, and I'm ready to do it again, and did it again. All of these things came on him in his ministry of the gospel. And he said, look, give me a scenario. I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to, I'm willing to suffer that. Why is this ballast stone so significant? Why should it be in your boat? This idea that I'm willing to suffer for the elect. The whole, so here's the doctrine that you should put in your soul, the doctrine of election. 
So we're going to talk about that at least for the rest of this hour, maybe for the rest of the year, but uh, maybe not. Why is it so important? Here's why. Because Paul is communicating the absolute certainty of God's mission being accomplished through his people. Absolute certainty that God's mission will be accomplished through the ministry of his faithful saints. Now, I heard a little rumble of an amen. This should really motivate you. There should have been a resounding amen, except we never do that at Calvary Bible Church. <laughs> this should move you. This mission that we're afraid to engage in because we might get pushed back or we might get hurt or someone might not speak to us. And I mean, those are valid fears. That might happen. But we should understand also that because of the doctrine of election, God's mission through you is absolutely guaranteed. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody will come to faith in Jesus Christ. But it does mean this. All that the Father gives to the Son will come. And the only way they will come is through you. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We simply deliver the word. We're the mailmen. We're God's mailmen and mailwomen and mail kids. We deliver the message. Our efforts at evangelism may often seem random and erratic. And if we think that it's our job to sell the gospel and get someone to buy it, you're going to be a wreck and you won't last long. You just won't last long. You're, you're going to quit. You're going to say, I'm not, you know, I'm not very good at this. Uh, you know, I'm just not gifted in evangelism. Really? Can you speak? That's all you need to do. That's all you need to do. God, here, listen carefully. God has chosen a people from before the creation of the world to whom he will grant eternal salvation by his sovereign grace. Now let's pause for a moment and, and think about what Paul is saying here. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Is this a controversial teaching in your mind? It shouldn't be. And here's why. It's everywhere in the Bible. It's everywhere. I mean, can we just stop for a few minutes and in, indulge in a little Bible study and a little lesson in theology? I don't know why I'm asking you that because we're going to do it this morning. <laughs> when I use the word gospel in a sermon, you probably think about Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead. When I think about, when I, when I say the word salvation, you're probably thinking of Jesus living and then being falsely accused, nailed to a cross, resurrection. And all of that is perfectly appropriate and, and true. I mean, that's the, the foundation of, of our salvation. It all comes through Christ. But as you carefully study the Bible, you begin to, to see certain words and concepts that are in the text of Scripture that speak to the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of salvation. 
This is also called soteriology, the study of salvation. In fact, in centuries past, a number of excellent men of the book, men of God, have found that you can take all of the pieces of the doctrine as revealed in the text of Scripture, not in, not in the logic of men, but in the text of Scripture, take all of those pieces and then put them in a logical order. They call it the order of salvation, or if you like the Latin theological, uh, the ordo salutis. This is the order of salvation, and we don't have time to go through all of this, but here is what the ordo salutis is. Ten doctrines that are all wrapped up in this one package called salvation, okay? Salvation includes more than, than you think, and yet you've heard of all of these things, and you love all of these teachings. And so here they are, in order. Number one, election, God's choice of a people to be saved. Number two, the gospel call, proclaiming the message of the gospel. You can do that to your children. Proclaim to them the excellencies of Christ. Call them to repentance and faith. You can do that with your coworkers. I do that almost every Sunday from this pulpit. If, I, if I'm not doing it from the pulpit, I want to do it somewhere else. This is the gospel call, the proclamation of the message of the gospel. And then there's regeneration. It's when the Spirit causes you to be born again. And then there is conversion, which involves faith and repentance. Although we usually say repentance and faith, it's faith and repentance. And then there's justification. Justification is when God, by his grace and on the merits of Jesus Christ, he declares you righteous. Your legal standing before God become, moves from being unrighteous to righteous. And then there is adoption by which we become members of God's family. We become sons and daughters, children of God by adoption. And then there's sanctification, how we grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We become more and more like the model that God has given us. There's a place for that. Liberal theologians only talk about that, but there is a place for it. Listen, the world doesn't have a model of what normal is. We do. We have Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is at work sanctifying us, meaning he's making us more holy or conforming us more to the image of Christ. And then there's perseverance, that all who are indeed regenerate, saved, and truly being sanctified, they will persevere until the end. They will die with their faith intact. And then there's death. Yes, death is a part of salvation because you don't get the final and eternal uh, uh, benefits of your salvation until you leave this world. Even so come, Lord Jesus, right? And then the last one is glorification because you don't just die. You are raised, as was pictured this morning in um, baptism. That's really more about us dying with Christ, that part of salvation. And yet the picture also points to a future resurrection when the dead in Christ will be raised. Now, I want you to notice that the very first component of salvation, as listed in the Ordo Salutis, is election. What is the doctrine of election? Let me give you a definition. I think I printed it in your notes. Election in the Bible is, 
And here is, you, you can look this up and find different wordings that are slightly different, but this is basically it. It is the act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Now that middle statement is put there because some will say, well, God looked down through the corridors of time and saw who would believe, and then he kind of backs up and chooses them. And comrade Mbiwe, is that how you say his name? Uh, the African pastor, I was listening to him this week, and he was <laughs> teaching on election. It was providential. And, um, and he said, if you treat God like that, you make him out to be like a schoolboy who is pretending that he didn't see the answers on the test before he took it. The question that should concern us about election is not whether one understands it, but whether the Bible teaches it. If indeed the Bible teaches election, then as a child of God, you are obligated to believe it. And furthermore, you are obligated to rejoice in it. One of the most important passages of Scripture on the doctrine of election is, he, is in the book of Ephesians. Now, before we go there, however, I made a change this morning in my approach to this, and it's, it's not in my notes, but I have a note card. I want you to turn with me to the, to the Gospel of John. I want you to hear this from Jesus. And then if we have some more time, I'll show you Paul in Ephesians or give you references to look up later. John, I want you to go to chapter 17 first. John 17. Now let me read the definition again. Election is the act of God before creation in which he chooses a people to be saved, not on account of their foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. John 17, this is uh, frequently referred to as uh, um, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's about to be arrested. I mean, that night. He's praying. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's going to walk down with his men. He just did the Lord's table. It was dark. Judas went and betrayed him. The door slams behind him. Jesus says, follow me. They walk up to the Mount of Olives. They get to the Mount of Olives. Jesus stops. There they are in the dark. Well, I mean, literally, they're, they're in the dark. It's nighttime. And he looks up into the clouds, I mean, into the sky. And he starts praying. And this is his prayer. Isn't that beautiful? Now we're going to listen to Jesus pray. And we're going to just take snippets of it for time's sake. 17.1, and Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. What's Jesus saying? I will give life to all whom the Father has given me. And this is eternal life, verse 3. You want to know what the definition of eternal life is? You don't have to look at Grudem's systematic theology. Just look at John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent 
Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name. I've revealed your name. The name here, when it refers to God, it means all, everything there is to know about him. It is his person in all of his infinite attributes. And so he says in verse 6, I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. When? And we're going to find out when in a little while. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And look at verse 24. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's the first hint. All, everything he's saying about the Father giving him these elect people is before the creation of the world. He realized that if you know Jesus Christ, there's a reason you know him. It wasn't because you were smart enough or good enough. It's because God in his mercy, before he said, let there be light, he chose you. He chose you. I don't know about you, but I think of me and all of my sin and all the junk that I've done in my life to dishonor God and then to come to realization that one day he stepped into my little orphanage and found my dirty self laying there, as it were, in a bed. And he comes and he says, you're mine. You're mine. Come home with me. Be my son. Be my daughter forever. And I want you to turn back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and, and there are other places in John. John chapter 6, verse 44. John 6, 44. I'd love to hear your pages rattling. Jesus is in combat with the uh, Pharisees. And he says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word draw here literally means to drag. And I will raise him up on the last day. In case there's any doubt we're talking about salvation. Whatever this drawing is, it results in salvation. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. And then, and then look at Verse 65, same chapter. Jesus is still in combat with the Pharisees. And he says this, and we don't have time to look at the argument here, but you can look at it yourself. You'll, you'll discover that this is according to the context. 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me. Listen to the, a little change in the wording here. A, a, little, a little more clarifying, tightening up on the lens a little bit. 
that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can come unless it is granted him by the Father. And then, and then go back to the right. Let's go to, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 26 through 29. Those of you who do apologetics in debate, speech and debate, I hope you're taking notes. This will help you. Uh, 10, 26 through 29. Listen to this. This is beautiful. Uh, verse 25 says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do, again, he's still in combat with the, the leaders. The works, that I told, uh, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. They're arguing about who he is. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now stop there. The question you should be asking in your mind is, why don't they believe? Why do they remain in their unbelief? Why are they lost? Why are they outside the family of God looking in? Why will they be condemned to hell if indeed they fail to repent? Answer? You did not believe because you are not among my sheep. You see, in the mind of God, you have to be his sheep before you believe. And you can't do that. My sheep, listen to this, my sheep hear my voice. He's talking about, he's talking about everything he's saying about salvation. I've come for this purpose. I've come to save. I've come to give my life a ransom for many. My sheep hear my voice. You reject my voice. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And... They follow me. I give them, verse 28, eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them, who has given them to me, there's that given them to me part again, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here's the thing. Most of us love that second part. I love to be sovereignly protected by the double grip of God. No one can ever reach me because of his sovereign grace. And yet some of us bristle at the sovereignty before the sovereignty. The sovereignty that happened before you were ever even thought of by your mama or your dad or anyone else. God did this before the creation of the world. Now, turn with me to Ephesians. We still have a little time. Ephesians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I was at Dallas Seminary wrestling with these issues, and I one day called up Pastor Jim, and he and I said, Jim, I know that you, uh, you have embraced the sovereignty of God over salvation. Help me. And just real quick, look at chapter 2. 
it reads in verse 1, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Okay, so we're talking about life here. We're talking about being alive in Christ. You were dead. And his question, this, this transformed my life. His question was so simple. He said, so answer this question, how dead is dead? <laughs> and um, how you answer that, that question will, will reveal, I think, whether you believe the word of God. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father. So here's Paul praying now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So we have nothing apart from Christ. Everything is in Christ, in the heavenly places. Even as he, what? Chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, this is amazing. Um, notice that while the word election is not used, its synonym is chosen. And when did God choose his elect? Verse 4. Before the foundation of the world, before he created the world, he chose you. You know why he tells us this? He tells us that our election is not grounded in our own good works so that we would understand that we are chosen simply because of his sovereign grace. And Paul says, Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 9, verse 16. He says this, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is all about God. Your salvation is all about God. And your whole life is all about God. In verse 5, he predestined us. There's a new word. He predestined us for adoption. There's adoption. As sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And notice Paul says, and I... In, in love, he predestined us to adoption. Again, Paul uses a synonym for election. Here it's predestined. And, and notice the exact wording. In love, he predestined us for adoption. This is, listen, this isn't, uh, you're so beautiful, I love you. You're so obedient to my word, I love you. You don't even exist. You haven't done anything good. You haven't done anything to merit it. Before the creation of the world, here is what God was doing. He was going public with his glory. He told Moses, Moses said, Lord, unless you show me your glory, I'm not going. And he said, well, I can't show you all of my glory, but I can tell you this. I can give you my verbal glory. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and will not leave the guilty unpunished. And God goes on in that passage to say, I am who I am, and I do as I please. You know what it means to do as, you know what it means to be God? It means you can do all your holy will. All of it. 
All of it. And everything God does is perfectly righteous and holy. And so notice the wording, in love. Beloved, this is an, an act of love. Uh, there's another word, foreknown. Foreknown. And what's interesting about that in, in one place is that Paul uses it for Jesus. God, the Father, foreknew Jesus. Right? You know what, the, you know what that's a reference to? Before creation, God the Father loved the Son. This is a foreloving. This is God the Father constantly pouring out his love upon the Son. And now he's drawing us into that. And he chose to do it before the creation of the world. And notice, notice Whose will was the motivating factor in our salvation? Not our will, but God's will. According, watch this, verse, um, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. In First Corinthians 1 will say, it is by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus. Verse 11, uh, verse 11 is, is one of my favorite verses in, in the book of Ephesians. But all it's saying here is salvation is from God, from first to last. We are the unmeriting recipients of his kindness and mercy and grace. We are the unmeriting recipients of his grace. But let's consider some other scriptures, very, very briefly. Watch this, Acts 13, 48. When Paul and Barnabas began to preach to the Gentiles in Antioch of Pisidia, Luke writes, listen to this carefully. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified God, and as many as were ordained for eternal life believed. Isn't that interesting? This is not Calvin. This is not Luther. This is, this is the inspired author. This is God. And these are his people. On, on this passage, Wayne Grudem writes, it is significant to, uh, to note that Luke mentions the fact of election almost in passing, as if it were the normal occurrence when the gospel was preached. How many believed? Answer, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. I mean, what else can you say? Other options, those who were smart enough to get it, those who were clever enough to wiggle themselves into it, those who did enough good works to merit it. No, 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 no. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. How about this? Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that those who love God, for, for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he, now listen to this, this the golden chain of salvation here. Um, he says, uh, I lost my place. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Notice the past tense of all of this. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, as far as God is concerned, 
if you are in Christ, you are already glorified. That's the certainty in God's mind. You're as good as glorified. And then 2 Timothy, and go back to 2 Timothy. Here we go. 2 Timothy, let's get back to our text here for a minute. Chapter 1, verse 9. And here's what we read. 2 Timothy, verse 1, or, or chapter 1, verse 9. He's talking about the gospel here. Verse 8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me as prisoner, but share in sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Drop the mic. I mean, can it be any clearer? Can it be any clearer? Revelation 13, 7 and 8. John's vision in Revelation, those who do not give in to the persecution and begin to worship the beast are persons, listen carefully, whose names have been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. You might ask, why did God reveal this? I mean, it causes controversy. Why didn't he just give us a book that didn't have controversy? Why did he, why did he tell us these things? I'll give you three reasons, and, and probably there are 10 or more. First, how many of you in this building suffer and have suffered? Right? Come on, everybody's hand. Are you breathing? Then you have suffered. Paul wants believers, especially those who face the prospect of suffering for the sake of the gospel, to know that God is always, listen carefully, God is always, he's always sovereign over your life and he always acts for your good. He always acts for your good. If you are the called, if you are the elect, if you are a son or daughter of God, adopted and redeemed, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then God, God has all kinds of good plan for you. It has nothing to do with money or more comforts. When Paul ponders the distant past before creation, he sees that God has already chosen us in love. And when he considers the recent past, he remembers that God called and justified the people whom he is predestined. And when he thinks about the future of Christ, he remembers that God is determined to give glorified bodies to those who believe in Christ. You know, my wife is going to have surgery again this week. She can't wait for her glorified body. It's part of salvation. From eternity to eternity, God has acted with good, with the good of his people in mind. And if God has always acted for our good and has promised to always act for our good, then we can be confident that we cannot, we cannot safely conclude that his work for us in any, in every circumstance is not for good. What are you facing right now? Do you believe that God is sovereign over your salvation and that he's worked that for your good? 
You know what my favorite, maybe my favorite passage of Scripture is Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How? How can you think for a moment that he will not also with him freely give us all things? He's saying, what's the all things? What do you need? God will not hold anything back from you. And no matter what you're experiencing today, even that is a gift. God is always the giver. And you are always the receiver. And it is all of God, so it will be all of Christ. And it's all of Christ, so that it will be all for his glory and not for ours. Once you grasp the concept that God's primary purpose in the world is to glorify his son, then the rest of this is easy. But if you think that God's purpose in this world is to make you comfortable and to rescue you from every discomfort, then you won't get the Bible at all. So that was number one. Oh, I'm out of time. Look at, here's two more very quickly. Number two, to promote worship. In Ephesians 1.12, he tells us that God predestined us in love through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glory. When you think about the sovereignty of God, it should melt your heart and inflame your worship. It should fire you up. It should just light your jets and you should just go blasting all over the place with the gospel of Jesus. In Thessalonica, he knew that their salvation was ultimately due to God's choice of them. In light of God's electing grace, it was appropriate for Paul to thank God for them rather than praising them for their own saving faith. And then the third thing, and and this brings us full circle, the last reason, the last of the three anyway, is to encourage evangelism. You say, where do you get that? Well, I get it from our text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal life. Here's what Paul is saying. I know they're out there. (laughs) And I read Charles Spurgeon yesterday. He said this, if God had taken every person born into the world whom he has elected, and painted a red, I mean, a, a, a yellow stripe down their back. I'd go around pulling up shirt tails <laughs> to see who the elect are. But since we don't have that, we proclaim all who are willing, come. All who desire, come. Come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, come. Come, all of you who are thirsty, and drink deeply of the water of life. Quit trying to drink out of your own broken cistern. Look not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Salvation is in him and him alone. We don't know who the elect are. And so we preach a free and open gospel for all who will believe. And this much we know, that when a person truly believes, it's because of the Spirit of God working in them. And so when you see somebody come to Christ at Calvary Bible Church, don't go to the person who proclaimed the truth to them. They're just the mailman. You praise God 
You praise God. You worship him. We never know who God is going to elect or who has, he has elect and whom he will save. Sometimes they are the least ex- expected. Les Trammell tells a story of his coworker who was so hostile, they'd be locked in a truck together taking these long drives and he would pound him with the gospel <laughs> and love him. And one day he repented and it was astonishing. My own father, when he came to Christ, no one was more shocked than he. <laughs> and secondly, me, maybe my mom, Why? Why did he come to faith? Because God the Father, before the creation of the world, took my dad, brought him to his own son, and said, he is yours. He is yours. And one day the Holy Spirit came and made that an experiential reality in my dad's life. And in Denny's life, and Rodney's life, And all of you who believe, this is how salvation works. And let me tell you, if you are a disciple, you're supposed to be a disciple maker. And if you are not responding to the Great Commission by sharing the gospel or helping disciple another people, I don't know what you mean when you say, I am a follower of Christ. Father, we praise you for these truths. They are too deep for us. And we, we tack on to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 4. He prayed for us. We pray for ourselves, Lord, that we, by your grace, would know that which is unknowable in its fullest. That is, the height and the depth and the breadth and the length the glory of the love of God. It is too high for us. But you have given us the capacity to see enough of it that it, it throws us to the dust, both in worship and in repentance and pure joy. So we praise you. And we give you thanks for these truths in Jesus' name.